Trains may look like large analog devices, but they're teeming with computers. Communications, monitoring, positive train control, fuel management systems, data recorders, power, and engine control systems all heavily involve digital components. It's not just locomotives that have become heavily digitized. Passenger and freight cars also benefit from many digital sensors and control systems. Because rolling stock runs complicated software and contains many digital interfaces, rail cybersecurity has become an increasingly important topic. In this show, special guest Brian McCord discusses just how embedded digital components are into modern rail cars, what cybersecurity threats exist, and how a researcher goes about discovering cybersecurity issues in rolling stock. Brian McCord has a background in developing cyber capabilities and planning offensive cyber operations for the U.S. military and beyond. He helps bring the hacker mindset to bear as vice president of labs at Shift 5. Brian, welcome back to the show. Hey, Josh. Great to see you again. Yep. Uh, well, we we did a, a couple episodes back. We, we worked on... Um, aircraft cybersecurity, and I think it's only fitting in the tradition of planes, trains, and tanks that we uh, we, we get to, to locomotives here at some point. Uh, maybe maybe tanks will, will um, uh, be, be on the horizon here, uh, if we can even talk about those. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I we, we were passing around this article um, a little while back about uh, Alstom recently putting an autonomous train on a test track. <laughs> Um, back, I think it was in May. Um, and, uh, you know, like autonomous locomotives are today. And, you know, there there's no person in the loop um, uh, controlling these things, which I think, uh, barring what we're about to talk about, could actually be a really welcome improvement to the way that, you know, freight, locomo- uh, freight locomotive operations work around the world, for example. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about crew fatigue. In uh, a lot of ways, you can um, sort of like reduce risks because you can run these things sort of uh, 24-7 with monitoring and you know that they're, you're not going to sort of incorporate human error into it. So that's that's really interesting uh, development. But at the same time, you're, you're taking the human out <laughs> by definition. And when you take the human out, um, now all of a sudden you've really, really, really got to make sure that whatever is controlling that locomotive you trust. And so one of the things we've seen over and over again with fleet assets is this idea that, you know, they were designed in a world where, um, you know, reliability and robustness in the physical world was something that was really important. You know, we've come a long way since 1802 uh, when the first steam-powered locomotive showed up on the scene um, with respect to safety and reliability in the in the physical world. But when you start thinking about a witting adversary, someone who either wants to do harm or wants to disable one of these assets um, for whatever reason, now all of a sudden you've got a whole different kind of threat model, all different kinds of risks that you're thinking about. And that's really where you, Brian, and your team come into play is helping to sort of put that mindset on. Like, what if I was a nefarious attacker and I wanted to subvert these systems? I mean, I, I guess it begs the question, just how important is it to start thinking about cybersecurity when you've got an autonomous locomotive like Alstom put on that uh, test track a couple months ago? Well, it's a good thing we run our own podcast. That way we can ask ourselves leading questions, right? (laughs) In that, yes, obviously cybersecurity is important when you start trusting the computers to do more and more. So, you know, going back to what you were talking about before, uh, 
this way of thinking about like what is the balance between computers and humans actually goes as far back as 2008 in the United States. So in 2008, there was a particularly bad crash, but based on a number of crashes over the course of time, where every time they did an investigation, they came back and said, what was the weak link here? And they said, it's the human, right? The human's not seeing the signals. The human's fallen asleep on the job because he didn't have enough coffee. He's not pulling the brakes in time. So the human's not paying attention, something, right? And so the Rail Safety Improvement Act of 2008 came down and said that the U.S. has to implement something called positive train control. And that's where they said some of these safety critical functions are so important and put so much risk on you know, toxic materials or people's lives that we don't want to trust a human with it anymore. We want to trust a computer with it, right? Because we want to give the computer the power to make that choice because humans have not had a perfect flawless record and we're aiming towards flawless. So we'd like to try computers. So of course the government gave them a long time to do that. Uh, originally the target date was 2015, but I think it wasn't until almost 2020 when there was 100% PTC coverage along like the 54,000 miles of rail that's required in the United States. And going back to Alstom, Europe is trying to do very similar things, right? They see humans as a potential flaw in what needs to be a perfect safety system. And so they'd like to try computers for fixing that. So they are getting to the point where we are taking humans out of the loop more and putting computers in their place. But here's the catch, right? For a malicious attacker, what do I hear? I hear, for example, in positive train control, the train now puts the brakes ultimately in charge like, of the computer. So the computer controls the brakes now. Right? It's no longer the conductor who is, by the U.S. standards, given a warning, allowed to take a manual action. And if that manual action doesn't occur, the computer is given permission to override the engineer and force the brakes. If you're about to pass a signal that's unsafe, if you're about to go into an area that's being worked on, if you're about to go too fast into a curve. So you're trusting the computer at the end of the day to make the final call. Where that's interesting to a malicious actor, right, is that now I know that a computer can be in charge of certain things that I care about, right? And then, of course, that matters even more for automated systems, where if a computer can control what the train thinks it sees, how fast it's going, what it does in reaction to those things, uh, that's a big deal. Not to mention the fact that now we are connecting our trains, right, because something like in the U.S. with positive train control, you have to be able to talk to the wayside stations, you have to be able to talk to the back office, all as like the legal requirements of the full system. So that means you are being imposed upon to put networks on your trains that connect your train control systems and various components with other places. And so now there's kind of these data feeds that didn't used to exist that uh, a malicious attacker can take a serious look at to actually alter the very cyber physical functionality of the train itself if uh, they accomplish their goals. That's a really um, comprehensive look at just how modernized these locomotives are becoming and like how integrated into the control systems, um, potentially remote, you know, systems are like reaching into a locomotive. And I think it might be helpful um, maybe for folks who either, you know, don't know a lot about the electronics that are running on a locomotive, maybe know a lot about a locomotive itself, but maybe 
less of an appreciation of, well, what, where are the computers in this thing? Uh, or for people who just kind of listen to the show and don't know much about either <laughs> locomotives or the electronics on them. Um, <laughs> could you give just a, a, a very high-level overview of, uh, first off, like a locomotive versus a rail car? Um, you know, obviously these are different, um, quite different. Uh, what are their jobs? Like how, 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 how are they laid out? Maybe we can, maybe we can start there. Right. Uh, so yeah, this is a good learning point because I've been learning a lot about it myself recently, not being like naturally part of the rail world until, uh, recent years in that, uh, a train is the locomotive, which is the driving force. Right. And then all the rare cars, which have the passengers or the cargo or whatever it is. So from an electronic perspective, there's a couple things going on. First, yes, at its heart, a locomotive is an engine on some wheels, and you make the engine go and the wheels spin, right? But what's causing all that to happen in a controlled, organized way is commonly more and more all these computers, right? So there's a computer deciding how much fuel to inject into the engine. There's a whole control console. Like if you Google right now, modern train control, like cockpit or where a conductor sits or any sort of Google phrase, uh, you're gonna see a lot of computer screens. That's because there's a lot of digital systems that allow the uh, conductor con to control the speed. It allows them to uh, decide like they're an electric rail, right? Like if they're getting the proper feed from the overhead electric lines, it allows you to hit brakes, identify safety conditions, uh, receive like directions in the back office. So there's all these compute going on for just awareness and um, helping the operators operate the train. And then there's, of course, all the electronics that control things like the power plants. So like there's usually a power plant that the locomotive is driving that allows you to like plug in your laptop and passenger car and charge everything up or, you know, run the dining car or run the lights in the rail. There's all that. And then you've got to connect to the rail cars, figure out what's going on. So there's two kind of like common setups, although these are not required, right? So there's oftentimes what you'll see is called a multifunction vehicle bus. So that is uh, on an individual car, how do all the electronic devices in that car talk to each other, right? So how does um, a braking unit talk to like a door or talk to other pieces on an individual car? That typically is not very standardized, right? It's pretty much, hey, OEM, whatever you want to do, you're encapsulating everything into one car. So as long as it all talks to each other, don't care what standard you use, don't care how you do it. There's a lot of common stuff. People use can open. Uh, people use all kinds of common protocols, but there's nothing like really standard. Then there's, um, you know, the train communication network or like a WTB bus, which allows cars to talk to each other, right? So how do individual cars become a train of interconnected units that all have shared knowledge of each other, right? How does that controller operator up front understand what's going on with this train? And that's when you get into um, more common, you know, serial networks or even sometimes Ethernet networks. A lot of things are angling towards doing everything over Ethernet. Although usually when we talk to customers, they don't understand how much serial is undergirding a lot of those Ethernet top lines because they're focused on the Wi-Fi, which is Ethernet, and they're focused on how do I get my route to display to the passengers on the screens, which is Ethernet connections? But then they don't realize that the brakes are so controlled by serial, that the conductor adjusting the speed is so controlled by serial. And so you realize that a lot of these units, for example, the newest braking units coming out of a lot of uh, factories, actually have microprocessors on them 
so that they can get the most efficient, correct, precise, immediate braking, right? Without overdoing it or underdoing it and causing undue wear on the parts. Uh, they're doing calculations, like constantly, dynamically to figure that out. And while that's generally pretty under control, it's like a one function thing, doing one thing at a time. If you have a whole network of those type of devices that need to talk to each other, um, then you start to realize it looks a lot like common networks that people have that are attacked all the time now, like business networks, right? Or IoT networks or industrial networks, where there's a bunch of devices talking. And if they're talking, they've got to have some way to talk. And that's a network that you can gain access to. And if there's no authentication or no encryption or no other things, if you start talking, then you sound like everybody else and everyone trusts you like everyone else, right? So those can be things to think about as you're looking about like, hey, my door's opening. It's not just like an electrical switch, but there could actually be a microprocessor saying like, I need to open this door at exactly this amount so that, you know, there's enough time for the old ladies to get through <laughs> or there's enough time uh, where I'm not squishing someone in the Tokyo subway, right? Um, and I, I've got a lot of these safety features that I have to implement and computers as embedded devices are one great way to do that. Well, um, I mean, this is the answer. This is the question that I think you um, you answer in your career on a on a weekly basis, uh, pretty much. But Brian, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting in that sometimes uh, companies actually, because of their safety requirements, can accidentally help the attacker. Right? For example, about eleven days ago on September 9th, uh, the federal Railway Administration, the FRA, uh, published to the United States that like, hey, we were doing testing on a number of positive train control systems, particularly the IETMS in the axes, um, which is used in the Northeast Corridor. And they said, look, we discovered that these uh, operators are smart. They're trying to get their job done the easiest way. And when they put certain components of the train to certain positions, they can actually manually override the PTC system which means the PTC can't actually throw the brakes, which is one of its many safety functions, right? So that means the companies, because of the federal requirements, are probably going to go back and fix that so that the computer that didn't used to be totally in charge is now going to go back to being what is legally required, which is the computer is in charge, right? So if I'm somebody malicious, I'm saying, gosh, now somebody's going to go in and fix what could have been an override that would prevent me from taking control of the train's brakes. Now that's something that um, is going to get fixed for me, and my job just became easier, right? Now I still have to do the hard part, which is get access to that system, especially if I'm going to do it remotely off the train where I'm safe, and that can be kind of complicated. But if you're able to do that, you know what the prize is, right? Like they have engineered the system to put you in the driver's seat if you own the computers that write on these devices. And so that's the way like a malicious attacker would start thinking is, oh, well, I know if I get in charge of these particular units or computers, then I'm in charge now, right? <laughs> I'm the captain now. I'm the captain now. <laughs> um, and so how do I do that? So you've like kind of knocked the problem down right. before. Um, and so considering a lot of these trains, um, you know, you have many different groups who are putting in all their pieces. You know, you build a train at an OEM. It's then added for like a positive train control system or other rail line requirements by a third party. 
and then there's maybe another group that comes in and sets up the Wi-Fi network, and then there's another group that maintains it. It starts to become a very complex system for people who are, you know, meant to run trains. And they offload a lot of this work that becomes very complex. And then you find a lot of uh, edges or attack services where people are taking like, hey, this is the smartest, fastest operational way to do this. They may not be giving full heed to the security implications of like bridging two networks (laughs) or causing this device to be connected directly to that device or putting one yet one more antenna on this that allows yet one more data link that's feeding into another computer system that may have vulnerabilities of its own. So it sounds like there are these parallel evolutions that are creating more and more opportunity for a cyber adversary to do something nasty to a train, right? One is, I think, an ever-increasing primacy to the digital components on a train um, you know, versus the human operators in that in that loop, right? Like a human operator override is a great thing as long as the human operator is doing what they're supposed to do and they're not, you know, getting around the, <laughs> the system. Um, and then the second is, you know, features, more features, whether that's, you know, more creature comforts for the folks that are in the passenger cars or it's more fuel efficiency for, you know, a freight car, which is one of the hugest, you know, drivers of, of expenses for operating expenses for a rail business, right? One of the things that's kind of interesting, reflecting back on our air, you know, aircraft penetration testing cybersecurity episode, um, is that, you know, the default position for an aircraft that's in the air is falling out of it, <laughs> um, which is really bad, right? Like, like we joke, but that's, you know, keeping an aircraft safely in flight is, um, is a real feat of modern science. And if you manipulate the control surfaces on an aircraft, you can very easily make the, you know, all of those modern marvels of science um, uh, dissipate. And, and now you've got an aircraft that, that no longer flies, um, for a locomotive, though, so what, right? Like, you know, you 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 you've hacked the PTC. You can send some brake commands. Like, the rail the rail cars aren't going to come off the the rail, right? It's it's sort of it's sitting there. So so I guess like given there's less of a sensational aspect of what an attacker can do to a to a to a train. Help help me understand, like, if I'm a rail operator and someone does actually, you know, gain pretty significant access to these systems, is it really all that bad? <laughs> uh, yeah, and it can be really bad depending on how good the attacker is, right? So to give you some examples, um, the natural state of the train is to stop, right? It's heavy, it's fighting against friction, it needs to keep moving. And so let's say you were able to take control of a train and put it in its natural state, which is stopping. Now you're breaking the number one rule of uh, rail companies, especially freight rail companies, which is move freight, make money, right? (laughs) Operationally speaking, if you're not moving, you're not making money because that's the purpose of your train is to get stuff from A to B. Now, if you're getting more elaborate, you can kind of take a step up and say, well, if I'm going to stop, does it matter where I stop? And it very much could, right? For example, if I have a railroad line going between two very important points, and at one point it goes onto a one train wide bridge, if I stop a train in the middle of that bridge, I have cut that rail line for use by anybody until you move that, you know, tons and tons of metal off of that rail bridge, right? Or you figure out how to get out there 
And if it's a bridge over water or some other complicated place to go assess your train, that's just going to be a huge pain for the company, right? Then if you go yet a tier higher, and you can do trickier things like um, show that signals are present when they're not or remove signals that are present when they are, start to take off safety restrictions, or God forbid, figure out a way to speed up the train, now you're talking real like personal life and limb safety issues, right? Like if I've got control of a train going towards Grand Central Terminal in New York and I accelerate to maximum speed, not good. Or if I um, you know, am able to say like, no, there are no workers in this area. Like I just erase that entry from the database on positive train control. Now you're going you know, 60 miles an hour where there's all these construction workers happening. Are you gonna hit one or what, right? Um, there's all sorts of things you can do if you think long and hard enough about what control of a train systems give you. Um, and it kind of matters on where you're at, what you're talking about, what kind of access you have, uh, what the actor can do, what they're trying to do, like what the purposes they're doing. But uh, I think the end state is very clear that everything up to life and limb is at risk if you don't have positive control of your train. Right. And I mean, we saw a couple of examples of um, transit authorities and short line operators getting hit with ransomware on their IT systems. And um, as far as we know, ransom, uh, ransomware criminal organizations have been able to get millions of dollars worth of payout in, in each instance um, uh, a variety of times this year. Some of them we probably don't even hear about, right? So Omnitrax um, got hit a while back and they were unable to operate their locomotives. Uh, New York MTA got hit. Um, so separating out like sort of the means from the ends, it, it strikes me that it's not just sort of these nation states sort or of scary attacks against critical infrastructure necessarily. What you're saying is that if an attacker was able to affect locomotives themselves, like the fleet assets themselves, to stop operations and affect top line of companies, like their ability to generate revenue, that could be a really juicy target and could mean millions of dollars of, of payout potentially if, if an attacker was able to pull this, this attack off, right? So, um, I mean, that's scary, but what's even scarier is I think, as we've discussed many times, we're relatively speaking like, pretty sophisticated on the IT cybersecurity side. I mean, we've got decades and decades of experience of at least like going into an organization, doing an incident response, figuring out, okay, this is why your laptops and your network gear went down. There's this malware, we know how to get it off. Here's probably what happened. It got in through like someone clicking on a link and then they pivoted through this thing and you had default passwords and bada bing, bada boom, like your, your network got compromised. What exists on a locomotive today? What kind of like antivirus or intrusion detection exists on a fleet asset, uh, rolling stock that would help us in a situation where an attacker actually did one of these attacks? Like how would we do a corollary incident response to help mediate that situation? Yeah, I mean, I can't say I've looked at every rail line or every customer or anything, but from what I've seen so far, very little, right? In that, the expectation is that if there's really going to be a threat from cyber, it's going to come in through a cyber vector. And most people consider that, you know, the IT network, right? That's why a lot of these companies have CISOs, they have uh, CTOs, they have people helping run their infrastructure, but they mainly think of it as back office, right? Somebody's going to get uh, fished through an email link. 
it's going to download a piece of malware. That malware is going to make its way through a system, kind of like a virus. It's going to end up on my train, and it's going to do something bad, right? So if I can control those network connections on and off the train through these IT systems, like maybe the Wi-Fi network or even the wayside networks, um, then I should be pretty good, right? Because that's the only place where the air gap is being crossed, and so that's fine. What I don't think they're doing a very good job of considering is, um, one, just like what's even common in the IT space still, like supply chain attacks, right? Where somebody actually infects or puts some sort of malicious code on a device you yourself are installing that just skips all that, right? <laughs> if you manage to get control of like the base code of like an event recorder or something that you're installing directly into your train on the control networks, um, you just don't have any protections if you're trying to only defend at the edge, the eggshell defense, if you will, right? Uh, secondly, there's a lot of cyber-physical effects that don't really even take exploits, per se. Uh, now, I might be misquoting this, but I remember a, an article a long time ago about this kid in Poland who realized that with, uh, I think he was tweaking what amounted to like an infrared remote control for a TV. <laughs> and if he tweaked it just so, he could actually cause some trains to move <laughs> because of the sensors that they were using to communicate to stations and wayside uh, kiosks and stuff like that. And so you've really got to consider more than just like the traditional cyber, like, oh, I'm going to take a TCP IP packet and I'm going to, you know, abuse an Outlook server to like get in that way. Um, there's physical ports that are often exposed. I mean, like, you know, I live here near Washington, D.C. Uh, I've been on, you know, metro rails and I've been on light rails in the area and I've been around and like, Sometimes maintainers will be working on something and they pop the, the case open and then they go to the bathroom and it's like, uh, you know, you can plug in or there's stuff literally on the outside of the cars where like the maintainers plug in. And remember, a lot of these OEMs build uh, devices to do maintenance on these cars, right? So um, we've been working with rail companies where they're like, hey, our train stopped between two stations. And currently, the only way that they really know what's going on is like a maintainer from OEM Company X has to drive out to the train, like open up the doors, maybe even pry them open, find that plug, plug in their special widget, and then get a reading off all the devices on there. So it's really monitoring like the interior of what's going on in these trains, and they're certainly not like piping it all back in real time. Maybe in some cases, like an event recorder is going to a sock somewhere or they're getting like some feedback from wayside stations saying like, oh, the GPS for this train stopped along these tracks, probably a problem. But uh, just the, the interior situational awareness is relatively low. And that's a problem because that's also a very trusted environment. Anything talking on the interior uh, has very low hurdles to clear in terms of authentication before other devices start listening. And so that's one of the things that we typically look for very carefully is not only those remote connections that everybody agrees are like problems that need to be looked at, but let's say you've got access to the inside. Uh, one, how would you do it through non-traditional means? But two, what could you do when you got inside there? Because that's what you need to think about in your defense.
I mean, it's all, it's pretty scary that eggshell defense is, is great as long as the shell stays in place. Um, and I mean, we've talked to a lot of folks who, you know, are even concerned about knowing what firmware is on devices in their, in their rolling stock, right? Like just basic things like version control management of like where, you know, swapping some, in some cases, floppy disks, oftentimes SD cards and these sorts of things around. And given that there's just so little understanding of what's going on at that level, I mean, the, that is the firmware. That is the logic that's running these locomotives. And if you don't have a good understanding of where these pieces of firmware are in your fleet, like how could you possibly know, you know, what <laughs> what malicious code might be running on 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 rolling stock? So that's that's certainly like an area that's that's pretty disconcerting. There are others that are equally disconcerting, but seem maybe harder, and those are the the external vectors, uh, if you will, the things that go over radio frequency. Um, what does that landscape look like? I know you mentioned, you know, like plopping another antenna, yet another antenna onto like a a, a car uh, or a locomotive. Give me a sense of what kind of data is transiting over the airwaves um, onto and off of these uh, these these trains. Well, I know a lot of the rail customers, especially those that have passengers, are very aware that like everybody inside of the car has access to Wi-Fi, right? Because it's a customer service they offer, and they're thinking very hard about how do I not bridge my Wi-Fi networks to the rest of the networks? Now, does that mean everyone has successfully done that? Not necessarily. <laughs> Most people are thinking about it and trying it. So that's like place one, right? Because you could have somebody very inconspicuously just sit on a train, ride around for hours, play around on the network, and see what they can do from there. But that's generally a pretty watched vector, right? I think where there's less attention paid is, uh, hey, you have a lot of other communications, right? Some of them are uh, required in a lot of different rails and areas. For example, like the PTC radios that are op often operating at like 220 megahertz. Um, that are passing information back and forth about the state of the train and what's going on and have different network endpoints inside the train on potentially different networks. And you also have um, sometimes third-party communications devices, like if you're doing um, specialized observation of events on the train or even like GPS locations of the train, there's a lot of third parties that offer like, hey, give your SOC, you know, your centralized point of headquarters, a much better appreciation of what's going on on your train from live video feed, GPS location, um, whether switches are pressed back and forth. And sometimes those, right, can be given uh, special kind of locations or special permissions on a network that has control or cyber functional kind of effects at the end of the day. And uh, that is also like a connection point that needs to be monitored closely. Uh, you're always talking with signaling equipment, right? In days past, that used to be very visual, like you used to have a big red caboose <laughs> that said, like, this is the end of the train. But now you have these kind of uh, digital end of train devices, and some of them are, you know, emitting, saying, like, this is my RFID signal or whatever kind of signal you're using, saying, I'm the end of the train. We don't need a giant red caboose that somebody sees with their eyes, right? Uh, and there's a lot of those kind of different changes and even one cool thing is like uh it doesn't have to be even operationally on the track right so one thing a lot of companies have been experimenting with is that at rail yards you know you can google this around if you want it's, it's very out there is they'll use remote control systems right so they have the train actually be able to go like 
front, back, move around a little bit uh, with remote controls rather than having to go all the way to the cabin mess with stuff because it's considered in a controlled environment in a rail yard. Um, and those are other remote connections that have to be watched that are not the passenger Wi-Fi, right? That are not an IT network that are directly interfaced with other control networks um, that, you know, rail customers have to be very aware of because, you know, being able to move around a train, whether it's in a rail yard or not, is something that um, you don't want anybody else but you to be able to. Right. Well, I mean, you could... You could you could say, look, everyone's got a laptop or a cell phone, right? And so everyone can connect to Wi-Fi and poke around, and that's why we're watching it. But people don't have access to the remote control widget that controls a a locomotive, and people don't you know have access to positive train control equipment. So you know why why would we be worried about those those vectors if we have you know physical control over the things that are um, you know on the other end of those? <laughs> Uh, so that is a, a portion of a defense mechanism, right? Like control the assets helps, uh, but it does not stop, right? So one, you have ways of reading data, right? And in most cases, like if you can read enough data, you can make a lot of smart inferences about the data. So I can go buy a thousand dollar software defined radio online and go start reading anything in any of those frequency ranges we just mentioned, Right. You know, like a 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi, a 220 megahertz PTC radio, blah, blah, blah. Like, you can get these multi-gigahertz spectral bands inside a $1,000 radio, and you can read all of them. And so now it's just a question of, can you find the protocol, like documentation for how to break it apart, what it means? In some cases, those are commercially available, right? So if you can start watching the traffic back and forth, that's a start. Secondly... Uh, you'd be surprised what you can find online, <laughs> you know, like uh, rail lines going out of business or just trying to get rid of their old stock or other things. Stuff I, showing up on eBay. Yeah, I mean, eBay alone, right? Uh, yep. And I've, I'm not even mentioning because I haven't done it personally, but I'm sure there are auctions or other places that you can go and pick up one piece here, one piece there. Um, and, you know, there's just... There's not enough control to definitively say no one could possibly put a whole system together, right? Yeah, and we've seen we've seen folks doing this kind of security research. In some cases, air quotes security research. In other cases, like <laughs> legitimate, you know, good guys doing um, doing security research and talking about them at, at, at security conferences. Um, on other examples of what was previously thought as very closed protocols that would be difficult for you to interact with. Um, Aircraft-dependent surveillance broadcast is a really good example of this, um, or GIS and maritime, which is, you know, the sort of replacement for radar, right? Uh, this idea that an aircraft or, or a ship is transmitting data about its location and its operating status so that ground stations, you know, can understand what their space looks like around them. No one designed these things with cybersecurity in mind because the thought was, how many ADSB transmitters are we going to make? There's going to be sort of positive control over all of these these assets. And then this thing that you 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 alluded to, the software-defined radio um, became uh, easy to manufacture and easy for folks to get their hands on. And now with one of these software-defined radios, a, a, a researcher can 
receive aircraft dependent surveillance broadcasts. In fact, there's a whole hobbyist community of folks. Um, Flight Aware, I think, uh, is 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 one of these uh, systems where like people will just plug twenty dollar SDRs into their computers and listen to aircraft that are going overhead. I think I remember seeing um, uh, when when um, we had bombed Syria like uh, a year or two ago that on Twitter, thanks to this community, folks knew about military aircraft flying around <laughs> to go do the bombing before like intelligence assessments were hitting the Pentagon. I mean, it's just like it's a crazy world we live in that's enabled by smart people and cheap technology that allows them to interact with these protocols. So, so software-defined radios have really changed the game and um, I think have enabled a whole – um, host of really uh, disconcerting attack vectors uh, for for the, for many fleet assets, locomotives included, right? So, so you've got all these different um, ways of, of of thinking about attacking a train, and 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 we've talked about what could go wrong and kind of how these things are architected. But um, you do this a lot, right? You do these 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 penetration tests on a lot of things, planes, trains, and tanks. Um, and, but and you have a framework that you've developed to to be able to do what what you call cybersecurity risk assessment or penetration test. Tell me about that framework. Like what you know, say say I'm a regional rail authority and I want I'm like okay, I'm sufficiently scared here that maybe <laughs> we haven't <laughs> given enough thought to what the the cybersecurity of our rolling stock is. I've got a good IT cybersecurity program in mind, maybe the, my, my wayside infrastructure, the switching, I've talked to some folks about that, but the rolling stock itself, I really am uncomfortable now. Um, what would you do to do an assessment to, to confirm the cybersecurity posture of a, uh, of a rail system? How do you go about doing that? Right, uh, to give the condensed version for the sake of the podcast, right? Uh, we want to treat it like most other aspects of security are treated, right? And that we know that a customer doesn't have unlimited money they don't have unlimited time, and they can't protect everything 100% all the time. There is no perfect defense, right? So what we want to do is make sure they understand uh, what their risks are in priority order about saying like, hey, us as you know, stand-in malicious attackers, here's what we would go after, and here's how you defend against that, right? So we give them both the problem and the answer is the idea. And so what we typically do is uh, we'll get physically on a train, right? Like we'll go to the site, we'll see what the train looks like. We'll kind of uh, over time become experts by reading documentation, seeing how like, no kidding. Okay. Documentation says this is supposed to be cabled up this way. When I actually go look, maybe a couple things have been switched around. Maybe some guy plugged in his coffee pot additionally, because like, you know, he's trying to just live the dream here. <laughs> um, and so we try to get the ground truth of what's actually going on and then start to break down the system for the customer, right? Saying like, okay, you know, there's 72 different devices with embedded computers on this. They're connected through these three different network types. Uh, we consider like these three or four to be super important in cyber because they maybe control really critical systems like braking or acceleration or, you know, the coupling of the trains or who knows what, right? Uh, we consider these ones to be especially at risk because maybe they have many nodal connections to other devices or maybe all of the outboard data links are connecting through one of these devices, right? Like it's got all the antennas hooked up to it or it's got the most uh, kind of at-risk networks hooked up to it. And then we kind of help prioritize and say like, okay, we've spent, you know, anywhere from weeks to months assessing your platform for you. Here's the 16 things we found. Here's the three most important 
and like, you know, in this order, and then the rest we've kind of like ordered out for you. And here's what it would take to address each. That way, you know, the customer can make their choice about like, okay, one, at least we know most of our like surface now, what is it we need to be concerned about? Two, how will that affect us operationally? Like, you know, uh, problem number 15 might accidentally leak the location of the train, right? Do you care? Maybe not. Problem number one could hit the brakes on the train <laughs> anytime we wanted to from a remote location. That's a problem, right? That's going to affect your operations, if not your safety of your rail line. And so um, a customer, based on the time and resources they have, because look, let's be honest, I mean, like COVID has affected the rail industry, right? It's not a joke. And like trying to understand how to become compliant with uh, current rail industry regulations and also any additional regulations tied to like new infrastructure money coming from federal sources or local requirements from different states, et cetera. Um, it's a complex web and it's not really for us to tell people exactly what they must do other than to say, here are all the things we recommend that you do. Here's how they affect you and your business. We will help you implement any and all of them uh, as risk control measures but now you have a full understanding, you go forth and make good decisions for your company. And every time we've done these risk assessments, invariably we find some stuff. And I think, um, you know, this is a very common practice in the IT space. You're constantly like doing penetration tests and red teaming to figure out what new vectors have I opened up based on growth that I've had or new folks that I've brought on or changes I've made to my IT infrastructure. Um, we, you know, you're sort of on the bleeding edge of pioneering a lot of what fleet cybersecurity means, and, and there aren't a lot of folks doing what you do. So oftentimes, you'll be interacting with, um, with, with locomotive operators or aircraft operators, or in some cases, the United States military, where this is the first time that someone's ever looked at these fleet assets. And so invariably, there's always things, right? There's always stuff that you find. Some of it's disconcerting. Some of it's like really grave. Others are sort of, we've got other bigger fish to fry. And give me a general sense of among the engagements that you've done and the things that you've found, what are some of the common sort of cybersecurity control measures that, you know, you either, either you know, sometimes it's configuration management where, hey, you had default usernames and passwords on all these things, you got to fix that. And they go and fix it. And there's no need for ongoing sort of product or, you know, services to solve that risk control, you know, that, that, that cybersecurity uh, control measure. But like, sometimes you'll find things and you're like, hey, look, the way this system's designed, you're going to need to put new monitoring place, or you're going to need to put, put new systems in and replace these systems to solve this problem, because otherwise it's just going to continue to be a huge risk. Like, give me a, give me a sense of what are some of the things on the fleet side that you've, um, you've, you've found are effective cybersecurity control measures for mitigating the things that you find uh, commonly? Yeah, I mean, it can be such a broad range of stuff. I think um, sometimes, like you said, it's really simple. Like, hey, connecting these two devices connects networks. And it's not here in your documentation. Somebody's doing it so that they can play their Xbox or whatever. <laughs> and uh, you should probably not do that, right? Or, hey, I noticed you haven't changed the credentials for your login to this system. Uh, that allows now me to log in, see all sorts of information, and get a new pivot point further down into the network. We recommend you change that. Some of that stuff's really easy. 
Some of it's a little more complicated. For example, like positive trend control is a great one because everyone has to have it, right? Like at least in the United States, it's a federal requirement on certain types of trains. Like you cannot get rid of it. And it's not even well-defined as a technical standard, right? There are many different companies who offer many different individual components that when put together comprises a positive train control system that meets federal requirements. So what that means is you're sometimes combining technologies from different companies or you're doing it for different versions. You know, there's version one or version two or version three, and you're kind of mixing and matching. So it makes the uh, quantifiable space of potential combinations start to get larger and larger and larger, which is really hard to get your arms around. So knowing that like you can't test bench every single possible combination of different things that you'd want to do, um, especially given that like, let's say the OEM manages to do that and provides you a complete system, you're going to put on a wide variety of trains for the average major rail line, right? They don't run just one model of locomotive or one model of rail car. There's a whole bunch. So that means you kind of have to um, branch into a, a less a priori model, if you will, right? Like you don't have to know all the answers going in. You just need to flag people onto the significant stuff happening as you go. And so, um, you know, what, what we do at Shift 5 is we recommend heuristical models, right? Saying that like, hey, I, if I know what the correct baseline operation of your train looks like, then I can start to notice differences like weird devices getting hooked up, weird messages being sent, things that I don't necessarily know what they mean up front, but I can flag them for you. So you can have, you know, like the train engineer that's been there for 40 years, who's like a guru of all things train, can come look at the actual data and be like, this is weird, this is wrong. If you don't have the computer do that already because of the training of your rule sets, right? And so that that means that like you don't have to know the answer to every single problem before you install something. You can actually continue to identify problems as you go. So even when new problems come along, you have something that you can do about them, right? Rather than having to go back to the original purveyor and said, hey, I bought uh, you know, the big white box. It did these nine things. I found out there's five new attacks. I need the big yellow box now to defend against these five attacks um, and then keep adding more and more stuff, you can try to maintain a more flexible approach, right? And the you know, IT networks that they have at these rail companies do a lot of the same thing, right? Which is step one, know what's going on. So you gotta tap your networks, you gotta figure out what users, what accounts, what network traffic is going on, what actual packets are slinging back and forth to even make educated decisions about it. Is there something wrong or not? And so that's, that's part of what we do, too, is um, an underrated portion of this is just kind of educating people about, like, this is what is actually happening on your train, right? Like, this thing that you thought was just brakes, well, that's actually a computer. And it sends, you know, digital frames of information that look like this to the control panel. And here's where someone's trying or could insert themselves, like, to cause a problem, Right. And so a lot of times when we talk to people and they kind of see the light bulb moment turn on, like, you know, oh, I've been in rail since 1974 when, like, you know, the microprocessor had <laughs> wasn't, wasn't really a thing in rail. Uh, so I didn't really realize how many computers were in there. And so then they can uh, kind of train themselves and train how to interact with it. Uh, that helps them make smart technical decisions that prevent these kind of problems. 
But at the end of the day, like if a system architecture is vulnerable, there's not much you can do other than either re-architect it, which is usually very cost prohibitive, or you can set active defenses in a defense defense in depth mode, much like you do with IT, to say there is risk here, but I can mitigate this risk with a number of smart adaptive steps. Right. And I think a through line through a lot of what you've been discussing is this idea of observability, right? This idea of we have these assets, they are the lifeblood of our business, whatever that is, if that's moving freight, it's moving people, um, they're the lifeblood of our business. They're hugely expensive and it's really important that they're operating. And what we've been talking about so far today is really about the cybersecurity of these things, making sure that you continue to have digital control over these assets that are so critical to your business. But one of the really interesting spaces that we've explored is where that activity of making sure that you have positive control over your systems and running them more optimally, being able to pull the data off of these systems for security purposes, but also using that data um, for things like operations and maintenance is a really interesting space. You know, we've we've talked to a number of regional rail, rail authorities and uh, class one operators where they'll have chief information officers, chief data officers, folks that live in that sort of information plane. And um, oftentimes, you know, we're seeing with, with newer locomotives that there's a lot more data that's coming off of these, these trains. Sometimes the OEMs put themselves in between the customers and, the, and that data. That's a whole separate problem. But that that data itself, things like, how are the brakes operating or, you know, granular information about how an engine control unit or a gen set is operating um, or how long it takes for brakes to be applied to slowing down the locomotive. You can tease out really interesting nuances from the data to do things beyond cybersecurity, right? Which for, for you is, is kind of an interesting thing because, you know, first and foremost, trying to make sure that we've got cybersecurity on these assets is is for all the reasons you described, extremely important, but it's it's a cost center. You know that cybersecurity is a cost center for businesses, and I think what we're seeing in this fleet cybersecurity space is for one of the you know one of the few times in cybersecurity that our activity of giving observability and educating folks about what actually is going on on their on their revenue generating assets might even give an opportunity for cost savings in some cases because you can you can take all this data and 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 reuse it for all kinds of interesting um, uh, purposes. So you know uh, maybe while we're wrapping up here, um, could you illuminate for us some of those um, areas that you've seen being able to pull data off of assets? Uh, where customers have said, oh my gosh, actually this data is not just a cybersecurity thing, it's a, an operations thing, and, and could you please give us that data in this form so we can, we can reuse it for, for, for this purpose? Yeah, I mean, that's less my field, but what I have seen while working here is um, predictive maintenance is a huge issue, right? So nothing costs more money than a train that broke down, can't run, uh, you've especially like commuter trains, you know, if they stop in between two stations and now people are trapped for two hours, then you get a lot of one-star ratings on Yelp or whatever. Uh, people stop using your service, your revenue goes down, and it's a big problem, right? And so uh, a lot of rail companies ask us like, okay, so how can I use this data to do things that keep my trains running, like you said? So we've been able to show in some cases that like, Look, if you have access to everything that's happening, both on your IT networks, but also your OT networks, your operational technology, 
about how these devices are communicating to each other, you can find interesting things. Like sometimes you can see, um, you know, as like a certain value starts to increase slowly, that is an indicator that, uh-oh, this part's about to fail, right? So for example, let's say you knew the fan speed of your air conditioning unit, right? Like your, um, uh, you know, it's the thing keeping the rail car cool for all the customers in the back. And you realize that like normally it's supposed to be going at this many RPMs, but then once it starts to break this, this line here, it's probably going to fail within three weeks, right? That's typically what starts happening in this particular model. So now you've got three weeks to go ahead and order another super expensive air conditioner system, right? They could be millions of dollars. So you don't want to order one and just let it sit there until you need it maybe later, but you can order just in time and then uh, have that ready to go so you can keep the train running without having to deadline it for a few weeks to wait to get the part. We've also seen, um, you know, different different ways of increasing efficiency. Like <laughs> we, we saw one rail line ask uh, to help us tattle on their operators, right? Like, hey, can you tell me like exactly what speeds they're going? And can you tell me uh, when they've, you know, uh, done these series of steps that they're supposed to do by the checklist that is policy of the company. And like, can you tell us if they're late or early on doing that stuff? And, um, you know, we can give you what the data provides. <laughs> uh, we're not there to be snitches necessarily, but if uh, all the operations, you know, project data, like they, you know, moving that stick or pressing that button causes a data emanation on the network, we'll catch it. Right? That's what Shift5 products do, amongst many things, and we'll feed it right to the customer, and they can make their rail line operations more efficient and uh, you know, even do things like there was one rail company that asked us to report to them automatically when a train was idling more than a certain amount of time because, one, it cost them fuel dollars, but two, uh, there was a state requirement that if you idle beyond X amount of time, you are in violation of that requirement, and you're going to get fined. And so they wanted to know, like, hey, can you give me, like, a five-minute heads up that my engine is still on, but my trail speed is zero uh, for X amount of time because it's going to cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars if I don't hit the off button in that time. And, of course, you know, sometimes employees, they like the air conditioning. They want the train to be on as long as possible, uh, which might be a mismatch with the company intention, right? <laughs> And so there are ways to save money like that that don't necessarily have to do with like preventing a hacker from taking control of your train, but you get the ancillary benefits of having all that data available to you for whatever use you want. Great. Well, Brian, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was uh, was illuminating. Like I said, maybe we'll we'll scope out something for um, for for the tanks portion of this, but we we <laughs> at least got the the planes and uh, and and trains down. So, uh, thanks again for coming on, and I hope to have you on again real soon. Thanks, Josh. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift 5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.